I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about people as a competitive advantage and features Claude Silver, Chief Heart Officer at VaynerMedia, and Whitney Johnson, best-selling author of Build an A-Team and Disrupt Yourself. This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Whitney Johnson, Claude Silver, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. This is Whitney. Cody, thanks so much for having me. And Whitney, this is Claude. I'm really looking forward to this, guys. Uh, How I begin each show is by explaining to everyone why I paired you guys together. And for you guys, was actually listening to your podcast, Whitney, uh, Disrupt Yourself, where you had Claude on. And there was um, just this kind of magical vibe that you two had. And and I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, You know, coaching football like I do, sometimes there's a couple of players that you see and they just hit it off. And uh, and I think you guys had that. So um, I wanted to get you guys together and recreate some of that magic. And um, uh, be a part of it. So I'm uh, really looking forward to this show. We're going to be uh, talking about how we can make people our competitive ad- advantage. Um, so I'll start with you, Whitney. You're about eight months removed from Build an A-Team, your latest book. Um, and what I found with mine that I'd forgotten when I released Where I Was Won't was that the day that you release it, it kind of goes from being yours to being theirs and uh, it takes on a life of its own. So what have you learned in the eight months since the release of your book about, um, you know, how have people taken your ideas and run with them? Yeah, I love that. It's like having a baby, right? You just, you birth something into the world. And from that moment on, it's no longer, it's no longer yours. It's um, like you said, it's, it's the rest of the world. Um, So, so a couple of things that have been really exciting is I remember having an executive coach. She coaches a lot of CEOs. She said, you know, she read build an A team and, looked at the S-curve of learning and had her explained it to one of the CEOs that she coaches. And he said after reading it or listening to her, oh, this is why I've been so cranky. Because he realized that he was at the top of a learning curve and it was time for him to do something new. So that's been one exciting thing that happened. Another exciting thing, I'll give you two more examples, is there was um, a, a CTO of a company and he had a person on his team or still has a person on his team. He's really talented. He's been really concerned. Okay, what are we going to do? I can tell he's kind of getting bored. He might leave. And so he explained the S-curve of learning to him. And he said, oh, okay, all right. So it's time for me to jump to a new curve. And so they figured out what he, you know, what he could do, something different, go take the company in a completely different direction. And afterwards, he said to him, I think you just S-curved me. <laughs> so now it's like this slight verb. And then the third thing I would say is to have companies come in and say, okay, this helps me understand. This gives me, you know, I know my organization needs this culture in order to grow. We've got to have it's like this vine we need something to attach to. And so I'm having organizations come to me and say, okay, help us do this. Help us understand this as curve of learning so that every person will take responsibility for their own learning, but also help us embed this in our culture so that we can have people um, have this language and this framework to operate in. And so, so to see 
this this meme, if you will, start to really um, get into people's minds and hearts is really, really powerful. So, oh, and one other thing, and then I will stop, I promise. Um, <laughs> just the other day, Alan Mulally, you know, one of the most important and impressive CEOs of our time, he turned around Ford, he, he was the CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes, and he said, this S curve of learning is brilliant. And I was like, my work is done. So that Wonderful. is, that's just a few, but super exciting. Well, and I can vouch for that too. Uh, it is an addictive read. And, and once you kind of, it's such a simple concept, you know, an S curve, you can already just by hearing the words, imagine what you're talking about. And so uh, I'm not surprised that it's taken on um, that verbiage and become uh, commonplace. Um, and that's awesome. Uh, one thing that I just want to say to Claude, you're a new mum. Congratulations. Whitney mentioned being a mum. Uh, so we will congratulate you on that. Thank you so much. <laughs> one of the things that, uh, uh, one of the, the sub chapters in, in Whitney's book is called Humans as Resources. And I love that because I talked about that in my book as well. And, and this concept of words mattering. And I kind of posed that um, managers should be called coaches and it should be part of their title so that coaching is, is inherent upon them. And you get a lot of press for your title at, at VaynerMedia, Claude. You're the chief heart officer. Um, so I want to know what, what's the statement that you're trying to make with that title and why was it an important distinction for you to have that in your title? Yeah, it's a great question. I just want to, I actually want to add to what you said in terms of managers being coaches. I actually believe that if we, if we do this revolution right and bring humanity back into the workplace, that the, the world of HR becomes that of coaches. So that's a, that's a kind of a, an aspiration of mine in, in even doing this work. To answer the question, and it it's, might sound very cliche in terms of the, the branding of what I do, it's, it's twofold. One, we created the chief heart officer role because we, we see everyone here as a human being and every human being has a heartbeat. Um, so for us, for Gary and I, heart really equals HR. And so that's where the first part of the, the, the word heart came from. The other one was that it was very clear when he and I met that I was heart focused, heart led, heart based. Mm -hmm. And so because this is the first of the role here at VaynerMedia and, and I believe everywhere, um, we've modeled this role after my personality and, uh, and, and that, and that seems to fit, you know, but um, I mean, the heart, the heartbeat is the operating system of each and every human being. And so, again, when I, when I talk about bringing more love, bringing more uh, humanity back into corporate culture, I am talking about heart. I'm very, very clear on that. I'm talking about the traits of heart and that those encompass uh, in my world much more EQ than IQ. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, and I think that's the key part of it is that it can't be a, a vanity title. Um, it actually has to have some behaviors like you talked about underneath it that uh, subscribe to that, that element of heart, like you said. Whitney, um, the narrative at the moment around culture is kind of that you need to have this sexy brand and awesome perks. And, um, you know, we, we kind of look to, to Silicon Valley and tech companies and, and companies are doing cool things. Uh, but you started your book with uh, the story of WD-40 and Gary Ridge, who we've had on the show as well. And they sell oil in a can. And, and they have this amazing corporate culture. Um, 
and 93% employee engagement, uh, and they don't have the sexy brand. So like, what would you say to the bosses of those kind of less sexy brands about how they can reinvent themselves and their people strategy to, to gain a competitive advantage like Gary has at WD40? Yeah, isn't it powerful? It, it's so interesting to me because exactly people think, okay, it's got to be really exciting in order for people to want to work there. And 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 oftentimes when I'm speaking to um, speaking to people, I'll say, you know, imagine that you just gotten a call from a headhunter. You know, it's from a job, it's for a job with a company that makes a product that was invented 60 years ago. And you know, do you want to work there? And everybody's like, no, nah, not really. And then you say, well, their engagement scores are over 90% and their market cap has gone from $250 million to $2 billion in 20 years, significantly outperforming the S&P 500. And everybody's like, yeah, I want to work there. And it's just so fascinating to be able to then say, but this is a company that makes a can of oil. Like they invented their product 60 years ago before most of you were born. And so um, what they have tapped into and they really understand is that um, it's about the individual and that every single person is on a learning curve, including you, including the CEO, and that the thing that motivates people um, beyond beyond praise, I would say, and even um, beyond certainly beyond money is this opportunity to learn. And they've really been able to, as we've researched the company, interviewed Gary Ridge, discovered that three of their senior people started as a, as a receptionist, one now is the company brand manager. And so if you want to be a company where people want to work, regardless of the product that you make, if you will allow your people to learn, leap, and repeat, to have this experience of repeated personal disruption, then you're going to have a place, people, have a place where people want it to work, regardless of the product that you're selling. And so that would be my advice is give people an opportunity to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you have to be very deliberate about that stuff as well. And I, I think that's what strikes me in, uh, I first read about it in, in your book and then I started to look into it. Gary's obviously an Australian, so um, uh, got in touch and, and we had a really good chat about that, about how deliberate it is that, um, that they've set themselves on this path. Um, and then Claude, the opposite for you, really, you work for a, a super sexy brand in terms of, you know, the magnetism that comes with Gary Vaynerchuk and um, uh, especially the, the media that he puts out and he's kind of in the middle of a lot of these conversations and, and people gravitate towards him. So how do you keep your people thriving so that uh, you can deliver on, I guess, what must be heightened expectations for your clients because of uh, how Gary shows up in the world? Yeah, you know, I'm going to echo what Whitney just said and concentrated on, which is learning and development and mm -hmm. wash, rinse, repeat. It is an enormous part of what we do here. And this population, 85% millennial, which is an incredible population, an incredible cohort of, of firepower and brains and brilliance and heart, they're looking for growth and development. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for things that are beyond a paycheck. Uh, they're looking for mindfulness and energy management, energy training. And they're really looking for a sense of belonging uh, fundamentally. So that encompasses diversity and inclusivity. And, and it, uh, it also in, encompasses looking beyond just the brushstroke of DNI into othering and how we all feel other, and how can we at VaynerMedia and within our culture, and then extend that to our consumer and our client, 
how can we be more aware, more self-aware and more mindful of everything from unconscious bias to social justice issues. And we have a responsibility here. I have a responsibility here to ensure that we are giving our employees, our human beings, these essential needs, uh, these essential skills, the essential traits. And I, I oftentimes will say that while we teach hard skills here, I believe that we are teaching life skills. I really, really do. Um, one of the things that is really important to the population are, are side hustles. And uh, as we are now calling that the gig economy. So if we can look at a human being as a whole person, and we, uh, and that's what we do here, if we can take into account that they have lives outside of here, that they might have an aunt that's sick or a dog that's in the hospital or just got engaged this past weekend or are stumbling because they have no idea how to have a hard conversation with their manager. If we have as, uh, enough contact with each and every person, which is my job, if we are as high touch as that, then we can give them what they want before they even know they need it. And in turn, I really believe that that creates a, a very, very powerful um, a powerful person and a powerful connection outside of these walls. As you said, you know, there's a, I, I do want to just say there's a difference between Gary Vee, the brand, and that is a very sexy brand, and Gary Vaynerchuk, the CEO. A big, big difference. Obviously, one feeds the other, so I, I never want to, uh, to say that it doesn't. But we all work for Gary Vaynerchuk, and that is a little bit different because he is a person that is going to spend time with each and every individual. And that's pretty rare. I mean, so I think that as sexy as it, as it seems, and yes, he's released four or five K-Swiss tennis shoes and so forth and so on. We are pretty much what you see is what you get and, and fairly uh, authentic here with no, not a lot of masks. Um, we, we aren't the brand of Gary Vee, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And good to hear that as well. Uh, you mentioned millennials there. I want to throw this open because I think um, uh, this is something that we need to talk about more. For me, on my side, I, I came from recruitment. So studied HR in Australia. I was in recruitment for 10 years in Australia and Canada. And so I've kind of lived it for a decade. And, and my perspective on it is that we need to fix the recruitment model that we're using, which is going to fix a lot of the, those problems down the line. Like you said there, Claude, uh, how do we become high touch? Well, it starts right from that that opening gambit in, in recruitment, how we're showing up in job descriptions, interviews, et cetera, et cetera. It really starts there and it kind of cascades down. Um, and I think when you, when you start to trace back a lot of the issues in the workplace that we're, we're dealing with, and this millennial generation in inverted commas is, is one of them, um, it starts with recruitment. So how, how do we get to the point where we are having those conversations, you know, in the interviews so that we can learn how to coach people once they're on the job? Like, do you have any, any tips or secrets, Claude, or how do you go about it? Yeah. So one of the things I changed immediately when I, I came into the um, CHO role was the way we even went about talking about hiring. So just the, the phraseology, we used to hire for culture fit. I mean, the company was started by brothers who hired their friends and friends of friends and friends of friends. So the great thing was everything, everyone was alike. And so there was a shorthand. And so speed was, uh, we, we, we aced speed. 
which was great. But what ended up happening when you lifted your head is that people were all the same. It was a, it was a melting pot of, um, of similar, similar, similar. Mm -hmm. So I immediately changed that from culture fit to skill set fit and culture addition. And right then and there, just changing that phrase and getting that uh, into the water here allowed us to look at the way we were hiring. And so, yes, the obvious part of, of, um, of culture addition is it allows us to look for diversity and diversity in the, the way that we all talk about it, race, ethnicity, sexuality, but also seen and unseen handicap. Also, uh, diversity of thought, curiosity, values that are potentially in our zip code, but not exemplified in the same exact way. So that's been a huge score for us. So I'm no longer hiring you because you and I both love Dave Matthews and we both love jam bands. That's right. awesome. But it's cool if you, <laughs> if you like rock and roll. You know what I mean? <laughs> so so that's, uh, that's the first part. And, and that, that has been a, a big switch. Then doing a lot of interview training. And that, uh, that, of course, takes into account unconscious bias. And what we do, calling each other out, at least creating the atmosphere where we can call each other out, call, call, and I mean hiring managers when I say call each other out, on um, a mock interview, looking at, uh, I'm sorry, looking at uh, CVs and seeing what we see. Like, is, are our eyes immediately going to where someone went to school? And I should say, by the way, I removed the requirement of an undergrad degree from every single job description because, I mean, Wait, you did? You did? Yeah. You did, yeah. Claude? So, like, people yeah. don't have to have an undergrad degree in order to work you there. Is that right? Yep. Wonderful. Not at all. Yeah. I, I just stripped that away because right there, okay, well, that's just eliminating a population. And in elimin eliminating that population, we are going to eliminate some great thinking and creativity absolutely i posed the 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 vulnerable job interview uh, the vulnerable job interview and the the vulnerable job ad in my book so um i positioned it as the the cleveland browns um you know one of the things with with sport and why it's great and why i love comparing sport and business is because it plays out in the public domain so you get to see it right so you see the stats you see the wins and the losses but if you're the Cleveland Browns and you're looking for a new player, you don't get to bullshit them like we do in the corporate world and say, we're growing, we've got this great culture. You can see it. They've gone 0-16. Um, so, you know, when they're looking for a new quarterback, they have to go with cap in hand and some vulnerability to the quarterbacks that are available to them and say, yeah, look, the results aren't there, but, um, you know, we need some help. Um, and if you start to snowball that idea into how we do corporate job descriptions even, you know, everyone needs help. And I think you'll, you'll start to kind of radiate at a level where people who want to help you solve the challenges that you have in your business, whether that's client-based, whether it's whatever, manufacturing, um, you know, putting it out there, you'll get vulnerability in response. Do you guys think that would be a fair statement? That's fascinating. So you're saying, saying um, on a job description, hey, this is where our company is. We're doing this well. This we're not doing so well. We'd like to have some help. Correct. That's a fascinating approach. And I think from a competitive standpoint, there would be some concern. But, the, but I think the reality is what you're pointing out is that your competitors already know where your weaknesses are. And so um, what's fascinating is you think about jobs to be done 
then you're allowing the job to be done theory. You're allowing people to show up and say, oh, so now that I know exactly what job you're trying to get done, then I can maybe help you. And then going back to what you just said, Claude, is I don't care if you have a college degree. I just care that you have the skills to solve this problem and the culture addition. That's fascinating. That would just break things wide open. Totally. Totally. As a matter of fact, Cody, I'm looking at a um, a job description I wrote for someone on my team. And while I am not the best creative writer at all, even the things that I said in the first couple sentences, I think stand out from the average VP of HR job description. Do you have a passion for people in policy? Do you know how to build a a world-class HR practice? Do you like to lead a team to great heights? Are you a player coach? Are you okay with change in a fast-paced world? No, really, a fast-paced world. Then I go in to talk about the the player coach. And, you know, um, so, again, and that's not to toot my horn on on writing. I'm going to put that in Whitney's camp. But um, but I want to encourage people to apply to this position that, are not tried and true HR practitioners. I would like to color outside the box as much as I can. And I'd like people to be attracted to this job description who aren't looking for someone or a company that is going to be strict with uh, policing and compliance and so forth and so on. While that is important, we have people that do that. We have a general counsel. So I, I also think that people that are coming to VaynerMedia are either coming because they know that we are onto something, we are in motion, and this is a great place to be, and it's extremely fast-paced. They're coming here, obviously, for Gary at some point, or they're coming here because we now are agency of record for some really, really hot clients, such as Budweiser or Chase or Diageo Brands, and if you want to work on your book if you're a creative or you're a production or a videographer or whatnot that's cool you know that Budweiser does some kick-ass stuff so so uh, you know what I I just want to go back to a few things you said um earlier in the conversation Claude and then I want to ask Cody some questions since you said we could um but there's something that you said that were so powerful and I I just want to call them out you said um, the heartbeat is the operating system of every human being. Wow. That is so, that's so, I want to use the word poignant. I think that is the right, I, I know we don't usually use poignant in that, in that way, but I think it's really poignant. And then I love, I never thought of this before, how heart has HR in it and how you mm-hmm. said that the world of HR needs to become coaches. You probably said this a million times, but Cody, wasn't that powerful when she said it like that? Absolutely. And again, I've been in HR for a decade and I hadn't thought about it like that. So I completely agree with you there. That was uh, off the wall. Good. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, so, so, so say it some Thank more, you. Claude. Yeah, I will. You know, <laughs> Whitney knows me and, and, you know, Whitney and I had a great conversation, great chemistry and, and a lot of vulnerability on the podcast. Um, and Whitney pushed me too, which I really appreciate. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've become more comfortable with lately is the fact that I, I probably think very simply when it comes to this world of HR, and that's not to 
uh, demean anyone who is a practitioner here because gosh, that, that it's a tough, tough role. But because I haven't been in it long and because I've only been in the world of people and, and as a human being for, you know, 40 odd years, my thoughts on it are very, they're, they're very simple. Um, that, that's, that's, a, that's the only way I can, I can really talk about it. So it makes sense to me that human resources, ha humans have hearts. Let's call this chief heart officer. I'm looking after 800 beating hearts. That, that is, that, that's the equation. There was no trigonometry in there. That was literally just straight up, not even algebra. That's just arithmetic because that's kind of as, as basic as I, as I seem to think about it. Hmm. Very disruptive, playing where no one else is playing. So, okay, so let's, Thank I you. think, I think, Claude, we should start asking Cody some questions. So, Cody, how did you, how did you get so interested in this topic? I know you said you did HR, but you, and, and your listeners probably know this, but you were um, a football coach. Like, give us, a, tell us a little bit of your story. Yeah, well, I became interested in this because of those two things. So you, you, on one hand, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five, I'd walk in and, and build teams in the workplace. And then I'd walk out of there and go and build this high-performing sports team. And so I was literally just living it day in, day out. And the, the differences, the similarities, uh, I was paying attention to all of those different things. And um you know, I'm, I'm a, a sports obsessive, so I can talk to you about NASCAR as, as well as I can talk to you about cricket, as well as I can talk to you about the NFL. And so I, I just consume all of that content. And um, yeah, so I ended up writing the book as I was leaving the corporate world and going into some more entrepreneurial things. And really it was just a collection of thoughts about how sports does the same things that, um, that we do in the business world. And there's a few things that they do in, in pro sports that they've been doing a, a hell of a lot better for a hell uh, of a long time. And, uh, and we can just grab onto really quickly and, and adapt them. Hmm. Yeah. So what were I you love, coaching? I love that. What were you, co yeah. What were you coaching though? Tell us what you were coaching. Aussie rules football. Okay. Aussie rules football. Okay. Got so it. I, I, I coach the, the Canadian national team for Aussie rules football. So we've got, Okay, um, we've got leagues all across Canada, and uh, so I'm, mm -hmm. I put together a, a bunch of Canadians, and then we go to a world tournament in Australia called the International Cup. It happens every three years. There's about 25 countries that go and compete. So it's uh, it's very cool to be able to be involved in my native sport, even though I'm mm -hmm. from Melbourne uh, and now I live in Toronto. Uh, to still be involved in the sport that I grew up with is is pretty cool. Yeah, really Absolutely. cool. I I. I have a question. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here for a second. And I, I don't know if like, do we consider NASCAR or formula one a sport? We, we can. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, the sake <laughs> of the question. <laughs> um, you're the expert. So I am absolutely mesmerized with a pit crew. Absolutely mesmerized. And in fact, I want to follow them around. What are your thoughts on, on, the, the makeup of a pit crew. I mean, they are, they are the essential that they make or break a driver. Correct. For the most part. What, why, like, well, how do they get that synergy? I mean, I know it's a team and yes, I understand football teams and baseball teams to an extent, but like, what is the magic of a pit crew? 
I wish I had an answer for you on that. I, I am, I, I'm exactly the same as you. I would be fascinated. And I was trying to get someone from Formula One on this show to ask those very questions because, um, you know, they're talking about, I read somewhere, there was an anecdote, I think it was in a book, it was actually about constraints, but um, they went from um, a pit, an average pit stop being four seconds down to three seconds or something like that. And that just changed a driver's career and a team's career, essentially. Um, hmm. But how they do that, gosh, how you're so hyper-focused on that one thing for three seconds and uh, you can just do it a hundred times over without any faults. Mm -hmm. I wish I could do that. So I don't have a an answer to that question, but uh, geez, I'd love to know. The three of us need to literally go shadow. We just, I, we need to, uh, we need to go to a Formula One race in Dubai next year and, and shadow. Them, <gasps> Let's do it. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. Let's I think that's going to be our okay. year for this call. We have to make this Game happen. on. Game okay. on. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Cody, that's our, our dare. I'm yeah. in a thousand percent. Uh, the season just finished. I know that. So we'll be able to get in touch with some teams, but let's make that happen. Love it. All right. I love it. Okay. I'm writing it down. Well done. We have, we have been officially dared, Claude. I am on. I'm so into it. Thank you. And I couldn't think of two other, two better partners to, uh, to travel the road with us, with me. No pun intended. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Hey guys, I want to ask you about a, a blog that I wrote today, which was about um, essentially calling bullshit on this idea of measuring a culture during the good times. Um, so, you know, you think about all these iconic corporate cultures that we've built, whether they're Silicon Valley, New York City, wherever it may be. Um, but for me, and this again comes out of kind of the sporting realm is where I want to measure it is when things go wrong. So where I'm interested in Google is right now, when you've got 10,000 of your employees out on the street, um, my interest is in how they respond and whether that, that culture stacks up when things aren't going so well. Uh, I'd love your thoughts on that idea. So the stress test of the culture, how people behave when they're under stress. Absolutely. And, you know, w there's some examples now that are, are serious stress. It's not just the stress of the nine to five. It's, you know, uh, questioning the, the whole culture of the whole business, especially in an age where I guess, you know, talking about vulnerability, like we've, we were before and open and honest and all these words that we've plastered up on the wall. What's interesting is whether they stack up in, in circumstances where there's extreme duress. Right. And we don't know. Um, it, it's so, I was thinking a little, uh, uh, kind of about this topic the other day of uh, tangential, but I think it does relate back. So, you know, I think about my own self and how I'm continually trying to improve of, you know, I have my routines every day and I'm tracking my performance and what worked and what didn't and trying to, you know, do things like be a better coach. And when I'm talking to people, ask things like what else, you know, based on Michael Bungay Sanyer's work, who's also in Toronto. And then I, then I come home and we have two children. We have a son who's 22 and a daughter who's 18 and she'll tell me something. And I, the advice monster comes out immediately. And I realize that that 
that's, that's the measure of my training. Like in that moment with the person that I'm most comfortable with, then I know actually how much I've improved. Because if the advice sponsor comes out with my daughter, then I probably still haven't improved to the degree that I aspire to, even though I might do a terrific job with the CEO that I'm coaching. And so I do agree with you. I think it's similar um, where, um, you know, it kind of also goes to that idea of I don't care. I, I don't want to watch how the person is treating the CEO of the company. I want to know how they treat the person who can't help them at all, ever. That is a measure of an individual. And so um, when you see these companies under stress, when you see things not going well, how they behave. In fact, I'm going to give you one other thought. There's this terrific, terrific essay written by Eric Schoenberg. He's the publisher at Inc. Magazine and Fast Company. He just wrote it in his book called Work is Love Made Visible. And um, have, you, have you seen the book? I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I've heard a lot of things about it. Okay, so here's what's fascinating. He writes this essay, and he tells the story of George Washington. And here you have George Washington. It's um, obviously during the Revolutionary War. They have just been routed in New Jersey, just up the road from where you are, Claude, um, you know, Fort Lee, New Jersey. They've been routed. His people are losing faith in him. And um, he's under, you know, tremendous, tremendous stress. And yet he does not let the despair set in. He does not let his people see the despair. And even after he has been at some level abandoned by those around him, um, when they go back and he starts to rebound, he still reaches out to his lieutenants and asks them for advice rather than closing ranks and not asking for any more advice. And so that mm -hmm. to me is really you know, behold a great leader. And so I, I agree with you completely. What's happening right now with some of these organizations and companies is a great, great measure of who they really are and of their culture. Mm -hmm. I agree. And, and, and something you said, Whitney, which was, you know, a, a, let's measure a culture during the bad times or during the sour times or the more anxious times than in the, you know, backslapping hoo-ha times, because, it's great then, and we know that. Well, one of the things that I thought about is, and something we talk about a lot, Gary and I talk about it a lot, I talk about it with my team, I talk about it with the senior leaders, is to be very, very mindful if you ever see someone crying in the bathroom to ask what's up. And I'm mm. using that metaphorically, uh, unless there is someone crying in the bathroom. But there's a lot of anxiety going on outside of this, uh, in the ma macrocosm, obviously in a microcosm, uh, competition within workplaces, uh, people certainly wanting promotions and so forth and so on, salary increases. What do we do when we see someone having a bad day? What do we do when we see someone in the elevator bank crying? That's, mm. That to me is how, that's where the rubber hits the road. and. It's not an HR problem, by the way. It's an everyone problem and an everyone solution. It's not just, well, Claude, go talk to them because I saw them crying in the elevator bank. I'd like to know what's going on because we can offer help. We can provide assistance, whether or not it's a, you know, serious, something serious outside of work or uh, an issue with the manager inside of work or whatever. But that is the, that's the real deal. And I think, gosh, when we, when a culture, I mean, that that word culture, if we go back in time to one of its roots, it was cultura, which is the cultivation of the soul. 
And so mm. we go, we talk about the human heart. We talk about the heart. We talk about human beings here. Well, we are whole people. I, I am determined to create a place here where f- people feel like they are psychologically and physically safe. And I will do that for the rest of my life, wherever I go, wherever I am. That That is critical for a person feeling like they can come and bring their best self. Whether or not we want to say whole self, best self, I just want them to come and bring their real self here. And that requires all of us to have our hands on the wheel. Claude, do you have an example where that's happened? I mean, I know you can't give details, but can you think of an example recently where that did happen in your organization and how that felt and what it looked like? Yeah, I mean, I have the elevator bank uh, scenario, which I just talked about, which was, okay. um, yeah, uh, and and it's it's life on life's terms here. So a lot of things are happening. We've had a lot of deaths in the last two weeks, things like that, or we've yeah. had people that are, are going sitting Shiva and things like that. Um, so believe it or not, it was I, uh, someone on Gary's team called me and said, there's someone in the elevator banks crying. Now, that person, 23 years old, didn't feel comfortable to go up to that person and say, hey, what's up? And, and that's okay. We'll work through that. We'll work on that. But they had enough wherewithal to give me a buzz. And I thought that was really brilliant. Rather than passing someone by, as we do sometimes, and, and certainly you know, we, 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 unconscious bias comes in and, oh, well, that person's just having a bad day or whatever. But I thought that that was really uh, remarkable of this human being to, to care. And that showed me that we're doing something right here. And that's just one example. Um, now, I didn't go scurry to find out what was going on because that would, could be a little bit, uh, a little too much firepower or a little intimidating. But I had someone on their team reach out. And it turned out it was a boyfriend situation and that's okay, cool. But we, you know, we did put hands on deck to figure that, to figure out what was going on with that one human being. And um, I'm grateful that I, I, that I work in a place that, that cares. I want to come yeah. work for you, Claude. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to come work for you, so we'll make it happen. <laughs> Sounds great. That's that's day number two. Whitney and yeah. I are going to come and work for you, um, <laughs> okay. and we're going to go to the Formula One. <laughs> and uh, you're going to teach us all about Australian football. Yes. Well, we'll have okay. plenty of time on the plane um, yeah. <laughs> over to where where were we going to buy? Um, so I'll teach sure. you all about it. Uh, we actually the best way to learn about it is actually at a game. You can't really tell what's going on on the television. Um, so there's a little tip for you. So. The third dare then is we have to go to Melbourne and I'll take you guys to an Aussie Rules football game. You'll love it. Done. Uh, okay. 100,000 people. Okay. 100,000 people packed into the stadium. It's, it's great. I actually wow. think uh, we can go see a Formula One race in Australia. So we could just double down and lengthen our trip. We could. We could. Well, it's in Melbourne. It's in March, though, I think, the Formula One. Uh, okay. Aussie Rules wouldn't start until maybe April, May. So it'll be a long trip. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, but I, I want to go back to, well, firstly, I love what you said there again, Claude, that, that's an everyone problem. I love that idea. And it reminds me of a passage of, of an interview that I wrote about, um, in the book, it was around captaincy actually and captaincy in sport and, uh, a buddy of mine, Stephen Caldwell, um, who has coached, uh, sorry, captained a bunch of soccer teams into the premier league. Uh, 
he calls them like connection moments and the need to have a connection with everyone on your team because you can't just turn on teamwork. And I loved that idea um, when he said that, you can't just turn it on. Whereas, you know, I think a, a lot of the time, in, a, in particularly in business, we, we, we're in teams, we sit together, but we don't really cultivate those connection moments and the opportunities for us um, to really develop the team. Um, so that when we do need the teamwork to switch on, um, we know how to. Um, yeah, so that's what I was kind of vibing on as you were talking there. Well, I'm just listening to you talk. And I'm like, but which comes first, right? Is it, does the team, you know, you, you have a moment where you work together on a project and it, it works. And so then you feel connected or do you find a way to feel connected and then you're able to work together on a team. So I, so I'll give you an example. So one of my um, business partners, we work really, really, her, her name is Amy Humble. We work really, really well on these projects. We did these three amazing projects last week. It went well, success, happy. Well, on Monday she had a baby. And I remember when she sent me the picture of her with that sweet, sweet little newborn. And I felt myself like tear up a little bit. I just felt this connection to her and this happiness and this sense of like, she's, she's one of me or I'm one of like, we're friends. Like I care about her and the fact that she's had this newborn baby, but I wonder like, which came first? Would it have happened if we hadn't been in the trench together? And now we have that moment. So I don't know what you two think. I mean, I think, um, so I, th I think everything stems from connection and having that connection with someone, which, which I, which builds trust and, and care and compassion and, you know, good oxytocin feelings. So I think it starts there, which I believe can lead to things such as accountability and resilience and, and grit, but I do think that there has to be that connection and trust built somewhere. And, and I, I don't mean like a fly-by-night project. This is like a project that would, would have some kind of longevity to it. Um, but just simplistic, simplistically, I, I, I feel like, you know, we're wired to connect, we're wired to, to be in community with one another, and that with connection, however that's going to be, you know, a smile, a laugh, a hey, I love Dave Matthews, whatever. That <laughs> that starts, you know, that starts the fire. I agree, and I I have an example of this where, and I've told this story on on another episode as well. But in in our football team, we're gathering players from all the way across Canada, from Sydney, Nova Scotia to Vancouver. And we go to this three-week tournament where everyone's thrown together in a foreign country and we're supposed to operate like this national team. And we're supposed to operate like a team even though the opportunities to be a team in between the tournaments uh, are basically nil. And so we had a lock-in meeting where we were able to uh, – where we handed out the jerseys and we had this celebration, uh, welcome to the team. And then everyone had to get up and say one thing about themselves that only a handful of people knew and then explain why wearing the, the maple leaf of Canada on their chest was important to them and their family. And obviously there was, there was um, you know, it was a closed door policy. If any of the 
the stories left that room, uh, you were done off the team. But uh, what happened after that was really magical because the next day on the bus, everyone was sitting with different people. They had made new connections now from hearing these, going back to that, that idea of vulnerability, these vulnerable ideas. And now they had new partners. They, they had new brothers that kind of understood what they were going through, whether they were you know, had lost a parent or whether they both had anxiety um, or whether they had both, uh, you know, whatever it was, attempted suicide. Like you, you can get really, you know, um, dark things come out, but now you've got an, a new brother and, um, you know, we, we actually didn't achieve what we wanted to on the field, but the group came away really tight because they had learnt a lot about themselves from the, that connection moment. Um, so I think it was a success for us because we were able to uncover that, uh, you know, wins and losses didn't matter after, after that session. Wow. So I would agree. I think the connection comes first. You think it comes first. Interesting. Okay. That's been my experience at least. And, and, you know, I'm sure there's examples that are maybe the other way around that, that, you know, the, the teamwork and the winning especially brings you together before there's a connection and maybe something that, that we haven't talked about is even respect. Um, you know, you can respect people without being connected to them and probably churn out something pretty magical. Yeah. What that says though, is that in the hiring process to go back to what you talked about earlier and how you hire is that if that connection if that's our hypothesis that the connection needs to come first that there needs to be something in the hiring and in the onboarding process that allows people to feel connected to the group um, and like you said it might be a smile it can be something very simple but there needs to be something that allows people to feel like they are part or they, they belong from day one so that's interesting to mm -hmm. think about yeah, and, and that's something that really needs to be fixed, I think, um, where, you know, I'm generalizing here, but for the most part, what we do is we, we spend all this time interviewing and, and everything. And then as soon as that person arrives on, on Monday morning at nine o'clock, we're like, well, here's your laptop and, uh, you know, and uh, I'll see you uh, at lunch. And, you know, the, we don't really put any attention into that. I think that's, that could be a real source of competitive advantage for someone that really sought out how to continue, uh, you know, that connection piece from the interview process to the onboarding process. Mm -hmm. We have, um, so we have a four day orientation process here. And uh, this isn't by the way, to paint us in with, you know, rosy colored glasses or be Pollyanna. There's tons of stuff to, to fix and revise and everything, but um, no matter who you are, you could be a C-suite, you could be a junior art director. If you are starting that same week, you're in the same onboarding class. And that's a four-day class. It starts at 9.30 every day. It ends at 2.30. And then you go and you sit with your teams or whomever, wherever you belong. In that onboarding, you're going to uh, not only get a laptop, obviously, you're going to meet with someone from each and every discipline, and they're going to run you through what they do. So that's the secret sauce. When people wonder you know, well, what does Vayner do? It really starts on that first day uh, or those first four days. You're also, you're paired up with different buddies every day for lunch. So not only are you getting to know people, you're getting to know the, the area in which you work. If you don't know, you know, where to eat lunch or where to get a coffee. And those, those things I think all contribute to, to the culture without a doubt. Now we had this, this week, for example, we had a breakdown there and it's, it was so interesting because 
there's such a high expectation that our orientation process knocks it out of the park. And it didn't this week. And wouldn't you know, I really, really heard about it from people in orientation, from leadership, from people that uh, the people that were waiting for their uh, their new team members. So it's um, it's something that really works for us when it works, and uh, and I and we can rely on it. All right. So you start with the point of connection by having people in a cohort that cuts across. Um, hierarchy and then have them rotate or have conversations with different people depending on the discipline and then different buddies during lunch and are they could it like a really senior person for example that's coming in c-suite end up having lunch with a person who's fairly junior would you do that do that kind of absolutely 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 yeah so your first lunch so Whitney if you come in you're in the c-suite your first lunch will probably be with someone on your team Mm-hmm. So maybe it's going to be, you know, um, a copywriter. Maybe it's going to be an art director. Um, and then you'll go through different people that you will be connected with in the, you know, in the coming months and, and years, hopefully. But yeah, there's, we try to really make it as flat as possible. And I was, I was speaking to um, Andrea Sullivan yesterday about our, uh, she's our chief uh, client officer and I was speaking to her about our orientation process. And she started a year ago and she said, I am still great friends with every, everyone in that class. And I was thinking, you know, that's just awesome. Here you are, you've been around the block many times and you're telling me what still, what a great orientation process you went through. I love that. And there's, there's really not enough of that. I don't think, um, like you said, we, we tend to hang out with our, uh, our level. And so it becomes this kind of uh, duty to, you know, go out onto the floor, um, you know, come down from the C-suite, come down from the ivory tower, where it, it really shouldn't be like that at all. Um, you know, it, it shouldn't be an obligation. It should kind of be built into all of the processes that we have, um, like we said, right from that recruitment. Changing topics a little bit. I want to, this is a little bit down your uh, S-curve, Whitney. How do we get leaders to move from this idea of, uh, I heard it described as uh, monologue to dialogue the other day, and it was from a soccer coach I heard say this, where kind of the idea that the leader has to have all the answers and tell the team. How do we move that to a, a dialogue where we're solving problems together and there's an engaged conversation around what we're trying to achieve, whether that's a project, whether that's whatever it may be, you know, realigning the corporate culture. It doesn't matter what it is, but how do we move it from that idea of the leader knows everything and needs to tell everyone to finding those, those unique skills like you talked about, Claude, of everyone on the team and turning it more into a dialogue? Yeah, so I think what you're really getting out there is that we're moving. So, yes, as a leader, you need to lead people up the learning curve. But really what you're saying is you're facilitating their move up the learning curve. I think in a knowledge economy, to expect that you as a leader know everything is 
pure hubris and it's completely impractical. And so um, this goes back to where we started the conversation of, of Claude saying, you know, the world of HR becomes coaches is that it is your job as a leader to get the people, the resources that they need to be successful on the job. That may be that you can help them with that, but what you're really trying to do is say, okay, I've got this person at the low end of the learning curve. They're brand new. Here's what they know. Here's what they don't know. It's my job to help them figure out or, or to get the resources that they need so that they can move into the sweet spot of, of the curve. But I'm really leader as facilitator as opposed to this autocratic, I will teach you everything you ever need to know. And so when as a leader, we're willing to do that because it does require a step back from our ego, um, a step back to say, no, I don't know everything and I don't expect to know everything and you shouldn't expect me to know everything. And there's a humility in that. But when we switch into I'm a facilitator as opposed to I know everything, then the whole world opens up to you because you you have the whole world available to you to help this person get the training that they need to be successful in this particular role. I'm going to jump in and, and piggyback off of that. And I love how you, uh, you mentioned facilitator. One of the things I've been saying a lot lately internally and externally is a, a leader is a guide, not the hero. And we are here, we leaders are here, I very much believe in, in servant leadership, so I should kind of like put that in parentheses, but I believe we are here to turn all of these people here into heroes. And so they can do the same, then they can be the guide to the next generation, the next cohort, the next junior copywriters. And uh, that takes a level of self-awareness and the, you know, putting your ego in the, on the back seat to know that, you know, I've, maybe I've had my, my, my moment in the sun and this is what I want to do. And I really want to turn the next generation of art directors into creative directors. But it, it, it takes a shift in mindset if it doesn't come naturally to you. So uh, leader as guide, not, not the hero. I love that, the hero's journey. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing that down. And, and I, I love that because it kind of goes back to that idea that we were talking about before of even just the language that we use, changing manager to coach, and then it becomes inherent on that person to be a coach. You know, we talked about um, the etymology of words before and coach comes from stagecoach, which is, you know, to deliver someone from point A to point B. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love that whole idea and I agree. And I think that the, the key portion there is the self-awareness. And it, it, it's a topic that comes up a lot around a lot of things at the moment. We're talking mindfulness, meditation, all these different things. But um, yeah, the, the people that I see getting ahead in the leadership world and doing the best work in the leadership world are, are focused on that piece of, of self-awareness um, and moving away from the, the egotistical leadership practices of, of the past. Part of what makes it so hard is that because so much of our lives as we're growing up or as our identity is tied to what we do. So, um, you know, I got an A on this test. I, I, um, and it's very solo centered. And so all of a sudden we go from, okay, your identity is tied to you doing it, you being the hero, not the guide. And then all of a sudden we flip on people and say, oh, by the way, just kidding. We want you to be the guide. I mean, we don't really do that, but it probably oftentimes feels like that. And so you end up having to find people who have either intuitively done it or because of the experience, life experience that they've had, they've somehow learned how to do that. And so it is an interesting challenge 
because our society doesn't really uh, solve for those particular skill sets. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it takes a lot of courage also. So self-awareness, but one must have some kind of courage to go down, as you just said, the hero's journey and to look, look at yourself and to look at your warts and, uh, and come out, come back to the surface and be courageous and, and be willing to develop some kind of collaborative mindset. Yeah, it does take courage and great connection. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a funny one too because one of the challenges I think, and this is what people respond to me with, is that's great. If I go and do that though and I'm moving on to the next role, like how do I explain what I've done there? Um, Because you're kind of moving away from that, well, we grew the company by 120% and blah, 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 and it's more towards the impact that you've had on an individual level. And I think a lot of people struggle with how to explain that in the next job interview, the impact that they've had on someone. Um, and maybe it goes back to, you know, uh, having to pay more attention to um, references and, and things like that. But uh, I think that's one major hurdle that we're facing is kind of you come out with really nothing tangible uh, to explain to the next person. Well, uh, so I'm going to give you my thoughts on this area, and Claude, you might have some practical experiences or ideas, but I think it's a matter of metrics, and and you alluded to this earlier, Cody, is this idea of um, what metrics are you using? We often say to people, how many, you know, millions have you made or billions have you made? But I would say, how many people have you helped become a millionaire? And so if you can say to a person, okay, under my watch, these five people, these 10 people, these 20, these 30 people were able to go do X, Y, and Z, then um, that shows you that you've got a person who's a talent developer. I think to the extent that people still can't quite get that, you might have to do additional work and say, you know, this person was adding this much value and now they're adding this much value because of the work that I did in helping developing them. That's harder to do, but I think that's probably a place where people are going to have to start given that we do tend to be so quantitatively oriented and trying to measure um, the results of people. Um, but, but that's how I would do it from a theoretical perspective. I think that's amazing because what I, what we could do with that information is then put qualitatively, put that into interview questions, depending on if you're a leader, if you're going to be a manager. So how have you raised people? How have you turned uh, C players into A players? Um, how do you foster growth and development? How, what kind of priority is it to you? Uh, you know, we could give them a, a question such as, you know, the rubber's going to hit the road and the client deliverables are due by 9 a.m. And you guys have been working since, you know, 15-hour days. And you know, I, can, I can create a scenario question just looking at what's more important, you know, getting the client what they want or fostering the, um, the growth and development and getting the client what they want. So it's, all, it's also like, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of those types of managers that are, sometimes they're called seagulls. <laughs> they fly in at the 11th hour and then poop everywhere. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, welcome to the agency life. <laughs> so, you know, are, are they seagulls or are they collaborative? Are they birds that fly in a flock? 
is kind of how I would well, say so that. Well, to flip to flip that a little bit on um, Claude, you just reminded me one of the things I'll when you know I'll say to people when they're like, well, how do I know if I should go work in this organization? And I'll say to them, well, look for people who are talent developers. And like, well, how do I look for people? And I say, well, all you have to do is ask them, who are the last three or four or five people that have worked for you, and where are they now? Um, sometimes you have to just make sure because we talked a little bit about the unconscious bias. For example, if the last five people that worked for you are doing fantastic things, but they're all men and you happen to be a female, you want to test that or tease that out a little bit. But I think that is one good way for you to start to figure out, is this a person that I want to work for on the basis of where are there people now? I remember interviewing Patrick Pichette of the former CFO of Google, and he said, I love it when my people get poached. That's a person you want to work for. Because he's saying, yeah, I don't want to lose them, but I like knowing that I've got a person who I have helped develop and now someone else wants them. That's a badge of honor for them, but it's also makes, it's also good because it means I'm doing my job of developing people. Yeah, like Patty McCord says, you know, being being a good place to be from um, was was her big thing at Netflix. Was you know creating a culture is good to, to come from, and same idea on the individual level there. Um, the thing that I would add to to that, and the, the whole you know to put a bow on this whole idea, the what I think you'll find as well is, and this happens in in sport with coaches, is you end up having kind of even leadership profiles within the overall. Um, thing of coaching. So you'll have particular coaches that are very good at, like you said, Claude, turning C players into A players. You'll also have particular coaches that aren't good at that, but they're good at um, getting a team of existing A players over the hurdle. Uh, It's one of the things that no one talks about with Phil Jackson was the fact that the teams that he coached, the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers, they were already very, very, very good teams when he arrived. They couldn't quite get over that hurdle though. So both of those teams had been in the, the conference finals and the conference semifinals the two years before Phil Jackson arrived. And then I think he won the first year with both teams that he was there. So you know, he's someone that he's a particular type of, of leader within the overall title of, of coach. Um, and then you'll get the guys that'll come in with, you know, the rebuilding team and, and develop youngsters. And so, you know, that idea can exist in the corporate world as well, where, you know, you actually want to walk into a, an underperforming team and turn them around. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to, you know, that idea of vulnerable job ads where you would want, you would want the company to come and say, I need someone to come in and turn this team around because we can't get them to work. You'll, you'll find those people. Um, but you got to, kind of put it out there first that would be really interesting to try that to try that kind of job ad be really curious to see what happens yeah it would well and the thing that happened uh, not long after i wrote that passage was do you guys remember when kfc ran out of chicken in the uk and no. they so no. <laughs> so they ran <laughs> they ran out of chicken and so they responded with an ad and it was fantastic and the ad was just their logo with the bucket and they had reordered the, the letters F-C-K um, and then an apology letter. So fuck, you know, we fucked up. And it was a, it was a great response. Wow. But essentially what it was was this, this vulnerability going back into the market and, you know, full page ad in the London Times, we've messed up here. And all of a sudden it becomes you know, in, in the world we live in, it becomes a meme and it's on Twitter, it's, it's trending. And, um, 
and they they solve the problem with with vulnerability. And um, Dan Coyle, I think, has the stats on it in Culture Code. But um, you know, when you lead with it, the the response numbers are huge. When you lead with vulnerability, and I, I just I'm I'm convinced that that same idea exists on a corporate level as well, because all all companies are just a collection of people. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to see it tested and see how it works. And honestly, like, I think there's a, a competitive advantage sitting there waiting for the first couple of, uh, companies to take it up other than VaynerMedia, obviously, Claude. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, uh I want to ask you guys, um, who's, who's doing great work at the moment? Who are you guys vibing on? Who, who do you follow and, and are loving their work at the moment? Let's start with you, Whitney. Um, well, uh, you know, an obvious person is Claude and VaynerMedia. I know that because uh, it's on my head, but I mean, it really is amazing. And this is not an ad. Day, it's not an ad, but even the other day I was talking to someone and I, I don't remember who, and they were like, well, so how do we model ourselves? And I was like, you should look at what Claude Silver does at Vayner, Claude, Claude Silver does at VaynerMedia. So I think that's definitely something. Um, nothing else comes to mind right off the top of my head, but maybe, um, Claude, as you talk, I might have something else that I can chime in with. Okay. Well, thank you, Whitney. Um, I've been following Whitney for a long time, so it's just a thrill to even get to know her. Um, uh, I have really been turned on by uh, Susan A. David, and I listened to a podcast that she was on, and I'm not sure if it was... Um, uh, I don't remember which podcast it was, and I can I can tell you offline. Uh, but she really talked a, quite a bit around, uh, around emotional agility and has done a lot of studies around emotional agility. And I learned some things in there that I hadn't that I hadn't heard before. I hadn't heard the phrase um, "courage is fear walking," and that phrase really blew me away because it it broke down such an emotion that we, you know, we're all very familiar with fear. Um, and it flipped it for me. Mm. So I like, I like her quite a bit. Uh, so that's one person yes. and I, I have a ton more. Probably. She does good work. Um, I thought yeah. of one, so thank you for getting my brain going. <laughs> so um, one person that I has really influenced me this past year is, um, Laura Vanderkam, she wrote a book called Off the Clock, and um, she has some really interesting, and that was after reading Dan Pink's When, but she has some really interesting ideas about time and how time is elastic. And what we really, we don't actually want more time, we want more memories. And I, after reading her book, mm. I time-tracked myself for six weeks in 15-minute increments. And it was very revealing. It told me how much sleep I actually need per day. It helped me realize that even though I travel a lot, I'm spending more time with my family than I thought I was. Um, and she really reinforced, I'm using this app called One Second Every Day of trying to take a picture so I have a memory every day. And so really getting me to think a little bit more about time and how I use it and what my perspective is. And it's been very, very influential for me. That's cool. What is the app called? Um, it's called one. Yeah, you should use it with your cute little daughter. Um, yeah. it's, called, um, it's called one second every day. One SE. Okay. Terrific. And is that the one that it kind of pieces it together for you and you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have seen that. So, yeah, it's, so I, I started on January 1st. 
Um, and so I'm coming up on the whole year and it's just been a great, you know, way to track every day and try to create a memory even when it seems to be a fairly mundane day. Um, it's, it's really, it's very neat. Anyway, so her work was very influential for me, unexpectedly influential. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the best, uh, they're the best ones, I think. The ones right. where you, you mm-hmm. kind of go in with, with no expectations or no, no idea what's going to come out, but, uh, it really has an impact on you. Yeah. Very cool. All right, guys. Um, so uh, let's do our final promos. I think we're just ticking over an hour and uh, we could get into Tim Ferriss territory here, but um, we'll let you get back to your, uh, your child, Claude. Um, where, where can people find you guys? Claude, we'll start with you. How can uh, people follow you, uh, contact you if they wish, uh, and find the work that you're doing? Yeah, thanks. Um, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. It's all at Claude Silver. And um, I'm here. I, I get back to everyone that writes. So uh, I'd love to be in touch. You do. That's how we met. And yeah. Whitney, what about you? Yeah, so you can find me at WhitneyJohnson.com. And um, again, email me at WJ at WhitneyJohnson.com. And I have, you can find my podcast there and you can actually also download the first chapter of my book, Build an A-Team, if you do whitneyjohnson.com forward slash A-Team. So those are ways that we can connect if you would like to. That's an absolute must read as well. Yes, can't recommend it high enough. Uh, Thank you guys so much for coming on. I think, well, we've got uh, a couple of trips booked already um, (laughs) and I I think we've... uh, uh, completed my mission, which was to kind of tap into to you guys and the um, and the magic that you create together. So thank you for doing that with me, and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. And uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to come away with uh, a whole heap of great ideas here. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thank that you. was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, it was. Cody, it's great talking to you. I'm so inspired around your your uh, sport metaphors and Whitney. It's always a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you both. Thanks, guys. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave a five-star rating. But if you're going to go somewhere, I'd rather you go and check out Athletic Greens. If you follow me on social media, you'll see me doing two things, exercising and traveling. At my last checkup, my doctor told me I had the lowest cholesterol she'd ever seen, but I was crucially low in a whole range of vitamins and minerals that I'd never heard of. And as a result, my hair was in terrible shape. I went looking for the best all-in-one solution I could find, and I landed on Athletic Greens. I found it an easy habit to get on board with. A simple routine of one scoop in some cold water every morning before I have breakfast, and I have all my bases covered. And now, my hair is back to normal. And if you still don't believe me, I'm an Australian promoting a product created by a New Zealander, so you know I'm not joking around. I can't stress this enough. Jump over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody and claim your special offer today. Five free travel packs with your first purchase. Athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.